0: Welcome back to Russian Roulette, a podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, we sit down with Seth Jones, who is the Harold Brown chair and director of Transnational Threats Project here at CSIS. Uh, We're going to talk about his forthcoming book called A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War Struggle in Poland. Let's get started. So thanks for joining us today, Seth. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the, the book. This is a story that's not um, particularly well-known in the West.
1: No, it's not. It actually has, uh, I think, a lot of relevance to the current situation between the United States and Russia today. Uh, just to set the the stage a bit, this was a time in the early part of the uh, 1980s when Reagan wins uh, the election in 1980 and then comes into office in 1981, he's faced with um, probably the most significant instance, uh, certainly around that time, where we have uh, a, a Red Army that may invade an Eastern European country. There were multiple intelligence agency reports, particularly CIA reports, that the Soviets were uh, strongly considering an invasion of Poland. In this re- is in response
0: to the emergence of Solidarity in and the strike to the, movement.
1: Exactly. Uh, in response to uh, what began in the summer of 1980 as uh, uh, riots, demonstrations in the shipyards and the mines in Poland. Uh, and then in August of 1980, um, the uh, uh, solidar- what became Solidarity, led by Lech Wałęsa, cuts a deal with the Polish government to allow self Um, governing independent trade unions in the country. And from Moscow's perspective, this was a major potential crack in the Iron Curtain because it was allowing what they viewed as a democratic political movement or what what could become one in Eastern
0: Europe. Okay. So how was this perceived within the Reagan administration?
1: Well, the Reagan administration initially perceived solidarity as uh, as an opportunity to support uh, what what they assessed as a democratic opposition movement. Reagan viewed this in many ways, both in his private uh records in his diary, which is which is public now, as well as in public comments uh, that that he likened this to what what um what Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were trying to establish in the United States uh against the british in the in the 1700s. so he viewed this as much like the U.S. struggle against the British for independence, however, however good of an analogy that was, um, but as the Soviets started to push the poles to crack down and and then potentially threaten to invade with Red Army forces, the Reagan administration viewed this as uh, deeply concerning and actually as as an opportunity then to. Uh,
0: support what was uh, a labor union that was in serious trouble. So deeply concerning in what sense? Because, of course, Poland had a communist government at this point. It was already under Soviet domination. So why would the threat of uh, this crackdown or the introduction of Soviet troops into Poland uh, set off such alarm bells in Washington? Well, because
1: uh, I think as, as the CIA director at the time, William Casey, as the Secretary of State uh, Alexander Haig, Uh, as many of Reagan's advisors and as Reagan himself um, uh, decided, this was an opportunity uh, to uh, expand the seeds of democracy, in their view, in Eastern Europe and weaken Soviet control in Eastern Europe. Now, in 1945, the United States, led by uh, Roosevelt with Winston Churchill had agreed at Yalta essentially to cede Eastern Europe to the Soviet sphere of influence, right. in, including allowed Stalin to run the elections mm-hmm. in Poland, which were never democratic in the end. Um, and, and so in this sense, this was an opportunity from the Reagan perspective to throw away Yalta and to support uh, a, a movement that would weaken Soviet
0: control. So more opportunity than threat.
1: Yeah, I mean, so right, th- th- threat in the sense that um, that the what what the Soviets were doing was crushing an opportunity. Okay,
0: yeah. So, uh, talk about the the covert action that that's the title of the book. How did the Reagan administration intervene uh, to support solidarity and to dissuade uh, the possibility of a Soviet invasion? So, uh, in December of 1981, the. Um,
1: Soviets make the decision that they're not going to send Red Army forces in. Uh, Instead, uh, they coerce the Jaruzelski government to crack down through martial law. So these are Polish forces, law enforcement, uh, intelligence, and then uh, military forces that crack down uh, on solidarity. Uh, They establish martial law. They um, uh, uh, cut off all uh, telephone communications for several days. They they create detention centers across the country. Um, what the Reagan administration then has to make a decision about is, is whether and to what degree it's going to support solidarity. There is some assistance coming to solidarity by um, this period in, in December of 1981 and then into 1982. It's pretty limited. It's coming from some of the labor unions in Western Europe and the United States,
0: including the AFL-CIO. With which Reagan had a rather... Strained administration or strained relationship, in other terms, exactly. Re- uh, Reagan had a
1: strained re- uh, relationship with AFL, uh, AFL-CIO. They were providing very limited assistance at that point. Um, there was limited assistance coming from uh, the Catholic Church and its support network throughout the world, including at that point a Polish Pope. Right. So, uh, what what Reagan decides to do after going back and forth uh, within the cabinet? is to support a covert action program, uh, which was signed by the president in November of 1982. Uh, it expanded over the course of its time to about $20 million, which was not insignificant. It was actually the largest single source of outside assistance coming to Solidarity. Um, $20 million. $20 million, uh, w- which, you know, there was outs- outside assistance that came from the National Endowment for democracy by the end of the 1980s. But in the early period, uh, when most of the assistance was provided to Solidarity, it was the largest outside source of assistance. Um, But what was interesting is is how the debate happened within the administration in 1982. Unlike in Afghanistan, where the CIA was providing money uh, for weapons, and then in some cases, Stinger missiles Mm -hmm. uh, to support an opposition movement, the Mujahideen, against the Soviets. In this case, this was entirely political, psychological. So this was the arm of CIA's covert action that was entirely political as opposed to paramilitary. No weapons. They'd been considered, but Solidarity didn't need it. What they need was money to run an underground
0: opposition. Right. It's also a much different proposition fighting the Red Army in Poland versus fighting it in Afghanistan. Exactly.
1: And 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 actually, Solidarity, unlike the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, were not Solidarity workers were not calling for mm-hmm. uh, weapons. What they needed was duplicator machines. What they needed was paper. Um, they needed uh, duplicator S- machines. Xerox that's machines. what they
0: called copiers back in the yeah. Dark they're, a, ages. they're they're they're, <laughs>
1: they're a little bit more. Um, I mean, if if you think about a Xerox copier, these these don't require electricity. These are much more like the uh, hand cranked. Ba- yeah, hand cranked yeah. back backyard versions of mm-hmm. a uh, of a Xerox machine that, again, that you didn't need a ton of resources for, um, but were helpful. Also on the radio side, they needed help in uh, running uh, radio stations, including money for it, and they needed some technical help um, when, as television began to become more widely used in Poland, technical help in breaking into the evening news, for example, and showing solidarity banners that went across uh, the evening news on television. So. Money was really the liquid that was used to support uh, the opposition and some technical help on the uh, on the radio and the television side. That's where the administration, mm-hmm. the Reagan administration, ended up coming down.
0: So was there much of an American presence on the ground or was this mostly being done outside of Poland and then being brought in by uh, Polish activists themselves? Uh, the uh, polls had a fairly robust um, – uh,
1: emigrate a community in France. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of CIA case officers that were involved in the program uh, worked out of, of uh, embassies mm-hmm. and stations like the one in Paris. And there were several reasons for this. One is, uh, is the um, ability of both Polish and KGB intelligence to monitor them was much, was going to be much easier in Poland if they tried to run it there than sure. it was in Paris, uh, or in in a number of other Western countries. S- uh, second of all, there was a there there was a much more robust network of individuals in uh, places like Paris, and and that actually worked to the CIA's advantage here. This was, after all, as a covert action program, it was it was done through surrogates. Mm-hmm. So the way they did this is they recruited. About, in the end, 30 or so surrogates. These were individuals already involved in getting um, material into the Polish underground um, that uh, already had the connections. They were, they were um, getting this material through trucks, through the tier system that went uh, by truck from Western Europe, countries like Italy, um, fr- uh, uh, West Germany, France, into Poland by truck, by land, also by boat mm-hmm. through countries like Sweden. Uh, along the Baltic Sea, and into, into Polish ports. There already was a pretty active both legal and illegal um, uh, logistics uh, chain that went into Poland. So what the CIA did was just leverage what mm-hmm. already existed. But,
0: and the governments of these other Western countries were informed, knew about, supported the operations?
1: Uh, the, the one country where the U.S. had a Regular relationship with at the time uh, was uh, was the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the British, particularly MI6, was involved in a uh, another CIA program called the Book Program, where uh, there were bookstores, including in London, that were getting uh, underground material, books, uh, many that had been outlawed in either the Soviet Union or in Eastern Europe, um, magazines that um, supported uh, opposition movements in Eastern Europe. The uh, MI6 and the CIA were, were were jointly running a program. So uh, the allies generally were informed about what the CIA was doing. The French intelligence knew about it. The Israelis uh, were aware of it. Uh, the Swedes, because their territory was being used, were aware of it. But I would say really at the strategic level, meaning um, – uh, Casey had informed, and Casey was the, the CIA director at the yeah, beginning. Bill Casey was the CIA director. Dick Malzahn was running the the covert action program. They generally informed Western allies broadly about the nature of the program, but never the specifics, never the uh, the assets that were being that that had been recruited and were being used. I suspect that French intelligence were aware of who the CIA was working with mm-hmm. because it was on French soil. I think mm-hmm. the general French view. Um, at the time, was uh, as long as the CIA was not working against France inside of uh, France and was giving them some general guide, um, guidelines about what the CIA was doing, they were okay with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, to what extent did Polish and/or Soviet intelligence cotton on to what was happening, or cotton on to the role of the of the United States in supporting uh, solidarity?
1: There's now uh, pretty good information about. Um, both from declassified Polish as well as um, Soviet, Soviet Politburo, Soviet uh, KGB sources about, um, about the program. They, they were well aware that there was a fair amount of Western funding coming in. They strongly suspected, and they were right about this, um, that a chunk of it was from CIA. Um, what they had a hard time doing was identifying very specifically which individuals were involved um, and uh, intercepting specific CIA assistance so what what Polish intelligence did with KGB help is they started penetrating solidarity offices mm-hmm. outside of the country so in Brussels for example, and CIA picked on this uh, picked this up pretty quickly, mm-hmm. so they tried to stay clear of solidarity 's Brussels office because they assessed it was penetrated by KGB and Polish intelligence. Um, uh, what what the KGB and Poles also started to do is uh, started to capture large, as much as they could, large amounts of assistance mm-hmm. coming in through the trucking system, uh, and that was ink cartridges that were being used, paper, uh, the mm-hmm. du- duplicator machines, and other Xerox machines. So they made a specific effort, ever- and we know this because the the uh, we have access now. It's been declassified to the um, uh, SB, the uh, Polish intelligence uh, archives. So we have we we have their data on how many duplicator machines they captured, mm-hmm. how many reams of paper. So they were clearly concerned about it. We know this. Um, they had a very hard time penetrating the vast majority of what was coming in. I mean, it looks like it was. Five six percent at most. Uh, what they were
0: able to uh, intercept—that's a little surprising. I mean, given you said there were ten million people involved in Solidarity in a country that is completely saturated with uh, surveillance and intelligence operatives, it seems a little surprising that they struggled so much to penetrate uh, the operation.
1: I think the challenge was uh, that that Poland was so porous uh, to outside assistance. The the you know there was really no holy alliance per se. There were some reports that came out at the end of the Cold War, including by um, uh, uh, Washington Post reporter that there was a holy alliance between the CIA and the Catholic Church. That's really not true. There was certainly some collaboration uh, between Reagan and the Pope, between uh, Casey, the CIA director, and the Pope itself uh, himself uh they were generally appraised of the broad outlines of the program as well but the catholic church in general was very supportive of uh, at least um a number of priests and other catholic church officials were supportive of helping put up posters leaflets you know churches like uh, st bridgets in uh, gdansk were used for um solidarity clandestine meetings so the challenge that Polish intelligence and the KGB found was there were huge chunks of Polish society that were open to um, uh, the opposition movement. And I think that's why in the end it was hard for them to stop this. Mm -hmm. It was the floodgates had opened and it was – they could sort of tactically and around the margins uh, get leaflets, posters, copies of journals, offset presses, Xerox machines, duplicators, but they were really only able to get because of the mat- the dikes had opened because because so much was coming in they they were really only able to nibble around the margins,
0: yeah so how much of an impact do you think that the American involvement in this uh opposition movement had? how much do you think that the eventual success of of solidarity in in helping bring down the uh Polish communist government owed to uh outside assistance? well, I think first and most important uh
1: the individuals most responsible for the um uh burgeoning of democracy in Poland by the end of the 1980s were a solidarity members mm-hmm. and b the, the Polish society which which welcomed which welcomed them and you could see this in the 1989 round table uh, negotiations and then the elections and then eventually the election of Lech Wałęsa as uh, Polish leader um I, I, it looks like uh, the, the CIA, particularly early in the 1980s, so 1982, 1983, 84, 85, the first couple of years after martial law, there were two types of, of um, support that mattered, I think, uh, that certainly helped. And, and I think, you know, one can overstate how much U.S., including CIA assistance, helped. But I think it did help in two ways. One is it helped provide... Um, the funding uh, and in part the material to continue to run an opposition uh, when, when the opposition really could have been crushed. Um, I think it, there was a period in 1982 in particular, early 1982, uh, and then 1983 where it was not clear whether the opposition was going to continue in a meaningful form uh, or whether they were going to be really cowed into submission. And getting assistance was helpful uh, to to uh, continue to operate. They had funds to do it. The other was Reagan's public statements, it's clear now in those early years, added added some vigor to the opposition movement. They continued to operate because they saw there was some support from major powers overseas. And this is why when you go to Gdansk today, for example, which was the heart of solidarity, Um, it is not surprising to see on the Baltic Sea a major uh, park uh, that is dedicated both to Pope John Paul II, the Polish Pope, and also to Reagan. And Reagan is, um, if you go into the St. Bridget's Church, which was, again, the heartbeat heartbeat of solidarity, Reagan and George H.W. Bush are pretty highly um, noted within the church. So I would say— uh, I would say that, that, that there was this additional um, added aura that the West, particularly the United States, was supporting them that helped. So um, one could overstate how much U.S. assistance uh, was providing. I think it's certainly uh, solidarity and in its uh, individuals, including the Polish population, that deserve the vast majority of credit. I think what CIA assistance was able to do is, is to help prevent
0: the movement from being destroyed. So let me ask you a little bit about actually writing this book. Um, did you find that people who were involved in, in these operations, both in the United States and, and in Poland, were willing to talk about it? I mean, did you find things in the course of, of doing interviews that really surprised you or that kind of changed your view of, of how this whole operation went down? Uh, this is an interesting question. I mean, uh, how do you
1: write a book um, that is on a, a covert action program that has not become public. Um, there are a number of covert action programs, including the book program, which we already mentioned. Uh, that is now a publicly disclosed uh, covert action program. CIA has publicly disclosed it. This one has not been. Um, so the first real step was to um, was to start reading through the secondary literature. But from individuals that had had to write, th- there, there were CIA officials that had to write, and their material had to go through the review board at CIA. So um, I assessed that it was probably accurate or at least was a, was a useful place to start. And there was information out there. Mm-hmm. So while the program technically- This is like memoirs covered, of people who yeah, had been Yeah, so this was Gates' From the Shadows. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Gates does talk about CIA assistance to Poland. Um, William Darty, his uh, book, Executive Secrets, he also worked at CIA, does also mention the Covert Action Program. And then Ben Fisher's study in the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence on solidarity to CIA and Western technology. Those were three CIA officials who published through the review board information. So I started with that kind of literature. And then from there, I was able to go to the archives, mm-hmm. the Reagan administration, Um, Hoover Institution, which has the archives of uh, Bill Casey, the CIA director. Crest, which is the CIA's um, uh, archives in Maryland um, uh, with declassified information. Poland, I went several times to – particularly to the European Solidarity Center in Gdansk, which has a fair amount of material from Solidarity, including many of the duplicator machines – and what I was actually able to do is find some of the sources and mm-hmm. assets that were recruited by CIA and in many ways – and f- actually found some of the material that they had um, they had gotten into Poland. Now, the final step was to con- starting to conduct interviews. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I found individuals uh, at CIA that were involved in the program um, – ones that were involved in the deliberations at the National Security Council mm-hmm. uh, staff, uh, then ones that were involved in the program all the way down to the case officer level. Uh, I, I did reach out to the CIA, um, and I did thank them in the acknowledgments for, uh, for uh, providing not just some assistance in letting me talk to individuals, but also they they uh, provided some comments on parts of the manuscript, they're actually quite helpful and uh, corrected some mistakes. I also interviewed a large number of people in the opposition movement in mm-hmm. Solidarity. They're still alive, including Lecvoenza. So uh, that, that was how you approach it. And so I would say if you're, if you're, if you're thinking about this in the sense of a puzzle mm-hmm. and you dump all the pieces out onto a table, I was probably able to reconstruct part of that final puzzle. There's a chunk of it of information that is still classified. So there are going to be holes missing mm-hmm. in the puzzle if you if you think about laying it on a table. So I think I've got the outlines and a lot of the meat of that puzzle together. But there, there are, I think, are and probably will continue to be for some time parts of that puzzle missing.
0: Okay. So let's connect this to things that are happening a little bit closer to the present. So in nineteen seventy five uh, the u s. and the Soviet Union signed the Helsinki Final Act. and among its other provisions, Helsinki basically acknowledges the right of countries on both sides of the Iron Curtain to be sovereign. So, in a sense, you could argue that the CIA's involvement in supporting solidarity was a violation. This was a form of uh, political interference in the internal affairs of of Poland. Today, when we have these debates about, political interference in third countries, you know, interference in elections, that kind of thing, political meddling, right? There is a, a Cold War prehistory to all of this that I think a lot of times we in the West don't think about or think about as being maybe kind of ancient history. But especially in Russia, where I think there is still a sense that there's a strategic competition going on between Russia and the West, this is a much more relevant, much more recent um, phenomenon. And so, you know, I'm curious if you have thoughts about, you know, sort of how this looked or would have looked to uh, to people on the Russian side, um, and whether you think there is some kind of an analogy between you know, what the CIA was doing in Poland in the 1980s and some of the more current uh, concern about political interference, electoral manipulation and the like. Sure. Uh, So two two thoughts here. First, the um, Soviets,
1: particularly the KGB uh, and the Poles, the intelligence services and the Polish government led by uh, Jaruzelski were apoplectic about what they considered U.S. CIA meddling in internal affairs within Poland but also in Eastern Europe where they considered what had been agreed on between the British the Americans and the Soviets uh, at Yalta they 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 had they had repeated multiple times that the US essentially had ceded Eastern Europe this was Soviet sphere of mm-hmm. influence so it was it was meddling in internal country and it was meddling in the Soviet sphere of influence I mean, the response from the from the U.S. at that point was, "Look, though, uh, that that the political system at that time in uh, Poland it was an authoritarian regime, state-run media. All the U.S. was doing was supporting Reagan administration uh, administration officials," said at that time, "was a democratic opposition movement. They didn't create it. Uh, they didn't uh, they didn't establish it uh, from the beginning." They were supporting a 10 million sized labor force in Poland with a much broader uh, support base in the country. Um, and And I think we, we have to view this in the broader context of what was going on. So we had a, we, we had a covert action programs like like this that were providing assistance to solidarity. There was also, all of the efforts that were coming in through Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, the BBC. So it was British and American and other Western radio that was being beamed in. So I I think the American response was, I mean, you could look at this as meddling. Um, They looked at it as supporting the seeds of democracy. And so they viewed it in the sense of how the United States was founded in general. So this is the way, this this was the response.
0: Yeah. And I think you still see this uh, divergence of, of views over the question of whether you want to call it meddling or you know involvement in other countries' political affairs between the US and Russia, right? Where I think the US has this view that supporting democracy is in and of itself a good thing regardless of what it means for the sovereignty of countries where that activity is taking place. Whereas the Russian view, as it was, I think, for a lot of the Cold War, is no, you know, we have these agreements, sovereignty at least then in the in the context of europe uh is more important is more valuable than you know any kind of uh political development that might happen and once you start you know prioritizing uh democratization over the protection of sovereignty you're creating uh, a path towards instability and, and ultimately conflict and i think in a lot of ways that looks like the debate that we're still having and that is kind of the framing of the of the competition today between Uh, the U.S. and and Russia.
1: I mean, I found it interesting in reviewing um, President Reagan's public comments, but also his private ones, Um, both his comments in National Security Council debates and also his um, comments in his diary. He viewed this in multiple ways. He viewed this in in terms of ideology, in, in terms of supporting democracy. He also, he also viewed this in a broader balance of power sense as well. So it was also an effort to weaken America's major global adversary. So it was not just about democracy, although I think it was partly about that. Mm-hmm. It was also about a balance of power struggle. And I think that's important. The other thing I just note, I think one of the things that appears to be a little different um, between the 1980s, at least the Reagan administration and today, is that um, Reagan's views of the Soviet Union were as a competitor. Yeah. and he said this uh, he said this publicly and he said this privately and then he conducted actions both overtly and covertly um, to weaken and compete with the Soviets. I mean, it's something that I think is the tone is very different coming from Washington. But not uh, necessarily
0: from Moscow.
1: But not from Moscow, right? The tone from Moscow may be in many ways actually quite similar. And I, the active measures that uh, I looked at pretty closely in the 1980s that the, that the that the Soviets were conducting against the United States and more broadly globally in many ways are very similar to what they've done. Obviously, the technology is different. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's interesting is to watch – how the, administ- how the Reagan administration comes in, it's a little bit different from today, um, and and uh, signs a range of national security strategies, NSDD 32, uh, 32, which is U.S. national security strategy, NSDD 54, which was U.S. policy towards Eastern Europe, and then NSDD 75, which is the U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union. Um, in all of these cases, what the administration does is it elevates uh, uh, information warfare, um, essentially on par with military efforts, diplomatic efforts, development efforts, and in broader intelligence efforts. So the U.S. then, uh, at the at the strategic level, authorizes, supports, and advocates the importance of information warfare. And so this program fits into a broader strategy. This this the program in Poland, where the U.S. is conducting offensive mm-hmm. aggressive action against the soviets not just reactionary but it is proactive right. in targeting uh the soviets and not just not just in various places around the world but in the heartland of eastern europe mm-hmm. and then ultimately in the, in the soviet, soviet union too. itself
0: yeah So you know that's that's interesting because I think you're right that the uh, on the Russian Soviet side there's a lot of continuity between some of these information operations that are such a a prominent part of the public discussion now and things that the Soviet Union was doing in the 1980s and even you know back in the 1940s. So your program, the the Transnational Threats Project here, actually has another report coming out soon um, that is. The focus is on terrorism, but it also talks about, uh, you know, sort of how the United States has to balance the focus on terrorism and the focus on state actors. Um, and I think you know there's an argument to be made that you know on the on the state side there is still. A lot of things that happen in this kind of gray zone, including the information warfare, including support for proxies. You know whether it's solidarity in the 1980s or whether it's you know UKIP uh, today. So I'm sort of curious. I mean, one, how this figures into the report and your assessment of how to balance the threat from transnational terrorist groups versus state actors, but also what it means for uh, figuring out how the United States deals with Russia today.
1: Yeah, I, I would say from, from from my perspective, the U.S. is in an interesting transition point. Um, if you read the national defense strategy and then you talk to a range of individuals involved in putting that together, there is clearly a sense, and it's understandable, that the U.S. has spent far too much time, especially in the last few years, worrying about terrorists and that the real focus should be on competing with state adversaries, uh, the Russians, the Chinese, North Koreans, and the Iranians. But how some view this, and I think where we're seeing um, aspects, for example, of procurement in the Department of Defense is uh, looking at funding, uh, running war games about conventional and nuclear war. So with the Russians, for example, the U.S. Army has significantly increased its focus on uh, fighting a war, if it had to, in the, in the uh, Baltic states mm. against, uh, against the Russians, the Russian invasion for example, um, and then trying to deter that from happening by positioning whether it's additional forces or systems in and around the uh, Baltic states. The reality though is uh, either nuclear or conventional war are going to be extraordinarily costly for anybody involved. Especially if they become nuclear, right? Uh, escalate to nuclear, and you see tactical mm-hmm. nuclear weapons. I mean, I, it struck me at, in participating in some of these war games, especially ones where nuclear weapons become part of the war game, or at least the threat that we're talking about. You know, potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people dying depending on, on how the war escalates. Mm-hmm. And so think, also
0: high risk, but also fairly low probability. Yeah,
1: high risk and and extremely low probability. And I think that's what we see during the Cold War is that certainly the the Americans and the Europeans had to prepare for a possible Soviet invasion through the Fulda Gap. Uh, so there was preparation both for conventional and nuclear war, but the vast majority of competition, conflict in particular... Took place at the regular or unconventional or asymmetric level, and that was support to proxy organizations, whether they were non-state actors or whether they were support to states that were countering them. Um, also, information warfare, and I think one of the things that that our that this publication notes is that. Um, First of all, there's still a pretty notable terrorism threat out there, large numbers of jihadist groups. I mean we've even seen recently pretty significant attacks both in Iraq and Syria by the Islamic State. Um, But in addition, a lot of activity by countries like Russia, whether it's it's, uh, support to rebel groups in countries like Ukraine, its active uh, cyber uh, component – whether it's Iran, which has a a pretty strong support base uh, using proxy groups like Hezbollah, there's a lot of blurring between state and non-state actors. And I think this, this starts to look more like elements of the Cold War than I think many people realize. Mm -hmm.
0: That's a useful reminder to think about the strategic competition with Russia as encompassing all of these other dimensions and figuring out how to actually focus on them. Seth, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, We look forward to the report and the book. Thank you very much. It's great. All right. Thank you for joining us again uh, on Russian Roulette. That's it for our show today. We will provide a link to Seth's uh, page on the CSIS website and uh, to his forthcoming publications in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, uh, this is your biweekly reminder to subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating and review. For those of you who don't use iTunes, you can check us out uh, and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, so follow us, listen to us, and spread the word to your friends. Also, uh, send us mailbag questions. You can mail questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia. Uh, you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff, and you can follow Olya uh, at Olya Oliker. And of course, thank you as ever to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our interns, Kimberly Schuster and Leah Khalikova, and the whole CSIS external relations and ILAB teams. Until next time.